Hi, I'm the person whose closet is put in color order, but I'll also pick up an earthworm without thinking twice. In fact, I did yesterday. <laughs> it needed my help. I'm not afraid to be a little messy. Human nature is messy, but nature nature can help us embrace it. I love the brand seventh generation. Their laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with the power of bioenzymes. That's exciting. You wipe your hands on your pants after you pick up an earthworm. Seventh generation is like, don't worry, hug a dirty tree, huff some bark, it's good for you. That is the power of seventh generation. Find laundry detergent and other laundry products at seventhgeneration.com. I love worms. I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. Oh, hey, it's me. It's your internet dad uncle back with a highly erotic, not uncomfortable at all episode about diseases in toilet water. Please don't leave me. Please don't go. Don't go. Stay. Please stay. But if this is your first ever ologies episode, there are way less gross ones. Let's be real. So go listen to a less gross one if this is your first ever. Or you know what? Pull up a throne. Because this episode, when you get down to it, is amazing. It's so good. I nervously showed up early to chat with this government pathogen expert. I heard about this field wastewater surveillance and environmental microbiology a few months back. And on February 4th, I tweeted desperately. I'm just a podcast Twitter account standing before microbiologists who test sewer water for plagues, hoping they follow me back. And amid much enthusiasm, this guest replied with a gif that said, I got you, dude. And here we are. And yes, it's gif. It's not gif. He said it was gif. So after 1,000 clearances with our nation's Centers for Disease Control, we are off to the races. Now, this ologist got an undergrad degree in microbiology, a PhD in microbiology from the University of Buffalo, and then also got a Master of Public Health in epidemiology from Emory University. She is now a senior service fellow at the CDC, and additionally, she has a dog who's a very good dog and sweet, and sometimes the dog weighs in from time to time in the background enjoy. So thank you for weighing in, by the way, and spreading the word of ologies like a pathogen and for supporting at patreon.com slash ologies for as little as a buck a month. Thank you for rating and reviewing and keeping us up in the charts. I read every single review you've ever left. And as proof, here's one. It's still wet. Uh, just left uh, yesterday from Eon Blue Ophelia, who said that the ADHD episodes were life-saving. Rachel also left a review saying that they were life-changing. Also, smells like maple syrup, a self-described construction worker who randomly laughs at work. Go get that eco-hydrology career. I hope you enjoy this one too. Y'all, a bunch of you left really sweet reviews this week. I read every single one. Thank you so much. Also, as a bonus, there's a surprise cameo in this episode from your favorite virologist about what to do now that mandates and masks are starting to fall. Because this episode, boy, do we talk about COVID. Oh, also, I cold called a listener in this and I threw money at them. So that's in there too. But on to the show. So environmental microbiology, bacteria, COVID in toilet water, medications in the waterways, plumbing the sewers for medical mysteries, things you can learn from studying stomach bugs, the weirdest things that get flushed. How gross is it for real? 
Can you get COVID from your stepdad's farts? And what is out there swimming in the world and how can we measure it to our advantage, including what's on the horizon with COVID? So if you are getting excited, well, there there must be something in the water. So do enjoy the brain of environmental microbiologist, Dr. Amy Kirby. So did not want to mess up anything with this interview that I got here earlier than I have ever been for any interview Aww. before. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> um, so hi, I'm Allie. <laughs> hi, I'm Amy. Nice to meet you. Could I have you say your first and last names in uh, the pronouns that you use? Sure. Uh, my name is Amy Kirby and I use she, hers pronouns. I'm so excited to talk to you. You're doing very important work. And I imagine as we're cresting a little bit of a swell here for BA2, you're probably pretty busy. <laughs> we have been busy since 2020. Um, yeah. And so I feel like, you know, I tell my team a lot, we're busy right now, but it's going to get better. And then something new happens, a new variant, a new surge, and we are busy again. Oh, man. I'm going to ask right out of the gate right now, how are we doing at the moment BA2? How are we? How are we doing? So we are doing good. So we are seeing overall very low levels in wastewater. So we have come down out of the Omicron surge and we're back to very low levels in wastewater. However, that said, we are starting to see some communities that are seeing some increases. And so we're watching those very closely to see if those increases turn into sustained increases and regional increases um, that would indicate another surge is coming. In the wastewater system right now, we can't distinguish between BA1 and BA2. We just see total Omicron, which to be fair is not very informative at the moment. Everything is Omicron. Um, so that particular data point isn't super useful at the moment but we will be able to distinguish those sublineages soon. I mean, I I imagine it's just curveball after curveball after curveball. <laughs> it is. And the variant tracking part has been really a challenge because you're always running to keep up with the next variant. There's two different methods that we use for variant tracking in wastewater. So one of them is PCR-based. So you're getting, and it's very quick and it's very quantitative. So we can use it to track changes in variants. Like it was very helpful to see the Omicron surge because we could see Delta going down and Omicron going up and we got good numbers around that. However, you're always in a race to keep up with the newest variant, right? That PCR only detects that one variant. Sequencing is a better approach because then we can see evidence of any of the variants of concern and, and easily adapt to new variants, but it's a slower process and isn't as quantitative. So the measures around how much of a variant is present in a community are not as accurate for that approach. Just a quick COVID check-in. Where are we at? Okay, so I'm recording this on April 12th, 2022. Yes, that is the same day it's released. That's how we roll. And right now, epidemiologists have their eyes on the Omicron subvariant BA2. And that was first identified in November, but it happens to cause more gastrointestinal issues. So a lot of people right now are mistaking it for a stomach bug. And it's known as the stealth variant because it looks like an earlier Delta variant, but BA2 is estimated to make up nearly 94% of cases in the US right now. In the US, cases are up about 10%. But in New York, 
up about 40%. Philly, I'm sorry, you're up 50% from two weeks ago. And it's probable that rates are higher as people are relying on at-home rapid tests that they don't report or just no tests at all. So what is on the horizon? Perhaps another wave as masks come off, warm weather gatherings commence, disco makeouts ramp up, it's summer, people get wild, but keep your ears open for another variant called XE. It sounds like a human mix of Grimes and Elon Musk, but XE is really a hybrid of Omicron's BA1 and BA2 strains, but with a few fresh mutations. According to Time Magazine, early research suggests that XE is around 10% more transmissible than BA2. These variants, they come on like software upgrades in the middle of the night that nobody wants. But just check the news and you'll find plenty of headlines like latest wastewater data suggest rising COVID levels and COVID-19 wastewater numbers skyrocket. And so, of course, of course, I had to show up early to talk to the top CDC scientist who is elbow deep in the data. Any cities at the moment that you're seeing a little bit of elevation? New York, I understand, Eastern Seaboard, New Jersey... Yeah, I, I wouldn't call out a specific city at this point, but certainly we're seeing concerning increases in the Northeast. And there we're seeing more and more of our communities starting to see these consistent increases. So looking similar to what we've seen in the past um, with surges where a certain region will start to sort of set off the, the surge and then it will move across the country. Staying on As high a, alert for that. Were you always uh, someone who was very up on latest trends? Are you obsessed with TikTok trends? How do you feel in general about keeping up with what's happening? Um, I don't, I mean, I'm a typical science nerd, right? How trendy can we be? But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's always fun to stay on the cutting edge of what's coming. And I don't necessarily think of wastewater surveillance as being trendy. It's something that we've been thinking about for a long time in various fields, and we've been using it for polio for decades. And so it was really about seeing the opportunity to apply a technique to a new problem. Um, And we already had the information that we needed and sort of how wastewater surveillance works. We just had to build the right system to use it for COVID at the national scale. That is something I do like to do is watch for these opportunities and see, you know, where can we leverage the unique skills we have? So I'm an environmental microbiologist by training. We are not uh, usually part of the public health infrastructure. That's very Mm -hmm. skewed towards clinical microbiology. And so it was great to be able to hop in early and say, there is a role for environmental microbiology here. Here's what we can bring to the table. What we can bring to the table is wastewater. Maybe we can bring it to the table, but set it down on the ground next to the table. I would love to know a little bit about the history of this. You mentioned other diseases. Can you tell me a little bit about where this started and where you started getting really excited about what we can find from wastewater? Sure. So the long history of the field is really based on polio surveillance. So when we started working towards polio eradication back in the 60s, one of the challenges there is that the clinical outcome that you're most concerned about for polio is of course acute flaccid paralysis, right? But that is rare. Most people that are infected with the polio virus do not go on to have that very acute outcome. In fact, most of them don't have any symptoms at all. Just a little history lesson here and a trivia tidbit. So we didn't have vaccine for poliomyelitis virus until the 1950s. And then in the 1960s, polio inoculations arrived not by needle so much, but via a liquid tincture of weakened virus saturating a sugar cube. Hey, what year did Mary Poppins come out? 
1964. Yep, that song was written the day that the songwriter's son got his delicious polio vaccine. Cheeky. But yes, scientific sewer spying also aided in the polio fight. And so we knew that if we were looking only for this very severe outcome, we were going to miss we, I wasn't involved, but, you know, we collectively, the field, recognized that we, that they would miss most of the cases in a community. And as you move towards eradication, that's more and more important because every one of those cases that you miss could be a source for another case. Polio virus is an enteric virus. Um, it's transmitted through fecal oral transmission. So shed in stool, you get it on your hands or on your food and then consume it. And that's the transmission mechanism. Ew, but okay. And so they knew that they could look in stool and in wastewater to detect the polio virus. And they use it to identify neighborhoods where polio is circulating. And then they go into those neighborhoods and do a vaccination campaign to protect mm-hmm. everybody. And so that's how they've been using it. It works very well to target that intensive polio vaccination where it's most needed. And that was where it's stayed, basically, until 2020. Previous to working at CDC, I worked on norovirus, which causes the stomach flu, basically. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we always used to say in the field is like, wouldn't it be nice if we could have a community stool sample because so many people get norovirus they suck it up for a day and feel terrible and they never go to the doctor mm-hmm. and so we don't measure those people and wastewater surveillance was a way to think about doing that but there wasn't enough benefit the return on investment to establishing a wastewater surveillance system for norovirus was not high enough to to get the infrastructure built and so we always just kind of hoped for it and and never um never really were able to move on it. And then when COVID hit and we saw that it behaves very similar to SARS-1, which we knew was shed in stool, we immediately started thinking that we might be able to use wastewater surveillance for this. And we're engaged with some early collaborators that had systems where they were already testing wastewater. And so we could could fund them to look specifically for SARS-CoV-2 in wastewater to see if, you know, can we see early evidence that this will in fact work? More on this exact moment of inspiration in a bit, and it's good, trust me. But Amy says that they began building the foundational data in early 2020. And by May, around the time you were whisking up Folgers crystals into history's most disappointing treat, a Delgona coffee, we all fell for it. Amy's team at that time, spring 2020, felt confident in the biology and the epidemiology of wastewater testing. So they moved fast and they needed to establish a system. And very quickly, we started pulling together, you know, how do we get utilities on board to take the samples? What labs are going to be able to do the testing? What data system are we going to stand up to collect the data at the national level? We spent a few months pulling all of that together and the system was officially launched in September of 2020 and has been growing rapidly since then. Experts say if you want to understand how COVID spreads, check your toilet. And just like what you'll find there, the news isn't all that pretty. Wastewater samples revealing record levels of coronavirus across the U.S. We have over 700 sites reporting into the system and collectively they represent just shy of 100 million people. So we're already covering almost 30 percent of the U.S. population. Wow. And do you have to train people at different sites how to collect samples? Do they ship them to CDC headquarters in Atlanta? How are you gathering all of the the sampling? Yeah, that has been a huge effort. So 
one key was recognizing that there's already a lot of expertise out there in how to do these things well. So working with our utility partners who are absolutely critical for this, if they won't take the samples, there's nothing to test. So working with them and asking them, you know, what are the best ways to take this sample? Where in a treatment process should we be sampling? Are there better ways to do it? What equipment can help us? How can we normalize for how much sewage is flowing through the pipes? And really engaging with them around their expertise, talking to the laboratories about testing. Um, we do not have a standard method for testing, measuring SARS-CoV-2 in wastewater. There's a handful of methods that have proven to all work reliably. And so we support all of those. And largely it was our academic laboratories where this expertise lie. They were very engaged in developing and, and really optimizing the methods and are still part of it. I mean, many of our states are using academic laboratories as their surveillance laboratories right now. So the fieldwork, shall we say, involves utility workers gathering samples at 755 different treatment plants all over the country. And the analysis work goes to different labs. And then the CDC manages all the data sets and figures out what in crap's name is going on below our feet and in our bodies. But like a drain, let's back up. And can you tell me a little bit about your start in this when you began your science journey, what kind of questions did you want to ask? And what kind of tinkering and collecting and field sampling were you doing? So my my history, like many people in public health, I think, was not a straight line to this work. So I always knew that I was really interested in infectious diseases and the pathogenic process and how something so tiny can cause such big impacts on people, on society. Um, I wasn't sure in like high school and college, what scale I wanted to work. You know, I, I think looking at things as detailed as gene regulation, which is what my um, graduate work was on, is fascinating. All the details of how these, these systems work at a molecular level. But I also think things like infectious disease history are fascinating and how big pandemics like this can really shape history. As I said, my initial training was at the molecular level. So after I got my PhD in molecular microbiology, I got a master's of public health in epidemiology and continued to work at Emory University for about five years doing public health research. That's where I did the norovirus research. And then in 2017 came to CDC, initially focused on environmental antibiotic resistance. So starting our program to look at environmental AR. And then when the pandemic started in 2020, we knew there was a need or an opportunity for environmental microbiology to contribute even more broadly than wastewater surveillance. We remember there were a lot of questions about things like surface survival and disinfection and all of that when SARS-CoV-2 yeah. was new. Those are environmental microbiology questions. And so in February of 2020, I was, we say, deployed to the response. So still reporting to CDC campus, but a different room. <laughs> so now instead of, doing, <laughs> instead of doing my regular work, I was doing response work for COVID. And those early days were focused on disinfection, surface survival, all of the things that went along with that. Response work, I mean, for anybody that's interested in public health, it is the thing that we all live for because you get to answer the questions that matter and you never know what's going to be on your desk. What will be on your desk is so many things. But yes, always in the back of her mind was, what about wastewater surveillance? Can we generate data for wastewater surveillance? 
And like I said, by about May of 2020, that had become my full time job. You know, shit gets real when they use the word deployed, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people get confused by that. It's like, "Mm, we're in the same building, just a different room. (laughs) Yeah, but a little bit higher stakes almost, it feels like. It feels much more emergent, for sure. At least it sounds like it. But what is your day-to-day lab work like? How much are you analyzing data sets and how much are you tinkering with pipettes and teaching other people how to do it? Yeah. So I think one of the things that people um, often misunderstand about the way surveillance systems work that are run by CDC, uh, we actually don't do the lab testing. So it's much more efficient for a large-scale system to set up the testing in each state. So it's close to where the samples are coming from, right? A distributed method for testing. So we do a lot of technical assistance for labs and answer questions and help them get connected to all of the resources that they need. But we're not doing any routine surveillance testing on campus. What we primarily do here in the laboratory is method development and validation. So we're already thinking about this is a great system. We've built it for COVID, but we could look for so many other things, right? I can go back to my old friend Norovirus. Virus. Oh, hello. And now we've put in the, the investment to build this infrastructure. Now it's a much lower bar to also look for norovirus. And so we can get that data in the future. So we're method development, validation, tinkering, make sure we really thoroughly understand how those lab methods work so that when we're on the phone with the labs that are doing the work, we can be as good as possible in our technical assistance. Where do you get your practice wastewater? (laughs) Um, We we have our sources. So we're based here in Atlanta. (laughs) And Atlanta has, like many large cities actually, has multiple wastewater treatment systems. And so we have longstanding collaborations with our local utilities. We can call them up and say, can we get, you know, five liters of wastewater on Tuesday? And they say, sure. And we Mm -hmm. go get it. And that becomes our, (laughs) our sample matrix. How treated is it? Be real with me. Where along the assembly line is it? Um, So we collect it. So the way it comes in, and this is actually fascinating. I should say that all of the people that work, certainly in news, so news is our acronym, right? A good government program has to have a pronounceable acronym. We're the, we're the National Wastewater Surveillance System and we pronounce it news. But all of our news folks, we're, we're, we get a little nerdy about wastewater systems. <laughs> so we really like to go out and see how they work. For news testing, the wastewater comes into the plant. There's usually a very large grate that acts as a pre-screen. And so it filters out all of the really big things. The I mean, they get all kinds of things, furniture, teddy bears, um, branches, sticks, tires, all the things that flow into sewer mains. And so it's going to get rid of all of those big things, but everything else is going to come through. And that is where we take our sample. So it is completely untreated. I've been swimming in raw sewage. I love it. When we get it. People often think that there's like whole poops floating around in there. That is, that's not what the sample looks like by the time it gets to us. There's a lot of mixing as all of the pipes come together. And so all of the stool will break down. Um, what it really looks like is if you wade out into a river and kick up the mud on the bottom or there's been a lot of rain and it's just kind of muddy river water, that's mm-hmm. what it looks like. Yep. That's what I would figure. I feel like it's a lot uh, more translucent than we imagine. Yeah. <laughs> How do you make sure that you don't get pink eye uh, all the time? 
So we have a lot of biosafety restrictions. And frankly, COVID is one of the least concerning things in wastewater for risk. Um, yeah, really what we're detecting mostly is decayed viruses. So they're no longer infectious. And so the risk for COVID from wastewater exposure is very low. However, plenty of other things. You can get pink eye, you can get norovirus, you can get E. coli. This is the CDC, people. They're not doing sewer water analysis while eating a hot dog and wearing biz cash. There are rules. There's all kinds of pathogens there. We handle wastewater at a BSL 2 plus standard. So we have to have gloves, eye protection, of course, closed-toed shoes, lab coat. And then the plus, so that's a BSL 2. The plus is respiratory protection. And that's for that low but possible exposure to respiratory pathogens like COVID. So an N95 mask in addition to those things. How often are respiratory illnesses enteric? Like how often are they detectable through wastewater? That is an excellent question. And I think it's more common than we think because we know other respiratory infections like COVID do this. So SARS-1, which luckily did not turn into a pandemic, is shed in stool. And just a quick background, severe acute respiratory syndrome, aka SARS-CoV-1, this was a coronavirus that hopped from animals to humans and in 2003 caused an outbreak with a case fatality rate nearly 10 times that of our current SARS-CoV-2. However, SARS-1 infected around 8,000 people in total. It killed 774. So we learned a lot from that smaller SARS outbreak, but not enough. We know that influenza is shed in stool. We know that respiratory syncytial virus, which causes a lot of really terrible infections in children, is also shed in stool. My guess is that is not an uncommon feature of respiratory infections. But we don't have a lot of data on it because the symptom and the transmission method is all respiratory. So the focus has always been getting those respiratory specimens and Fecal shedding has been sort of thought of as a weird quirk of the infection, mm -hmm. but not really relevant to the clinical course. And so we don't have good data on that, but that's, um, people are looking at it now. We are getting more and more data on flu, RSV, and some of the other respiratory viruses as well. So I expect we will learn a lot about that in the coming years. So just think of the last two years of your life on Zooms, meeting your friends' babies through plate glass windows as our golden age of pandemia, because we're learning so much so fast. And why I was so thrilled to chat about murky water with secrets to tell is because environmental microbiologists, such as Dr. Kirby, can potentially get much more reliable and objective data by overcoming the human hurdles of test availability and self-reporting. But what do they need to accurately predict a disease wave before it comes and crashes on us? So we can't use wastewater data for COVID to estimate cases right now. Mm -hmm. And that's because we don't have enough information about that shedding parameter to know, you know, how mm -hmm. much virus is shed by a single infected case. So what we see is that the trends align quite well, but we detect them earlier in wastewater than we see them in clinical cases. Omicron peaks in both cases and wastewater are much higher than what we saw for Delta, right? So the magnitude parallels what we expect for cases. And I think one of the things that we have always thought about with surveillance is, you know, I know people get tired of hearing about this, but it's the surveillance iceberg is all, has always been our analogy. Iceberg, what we can detect in surveillance 
particularly clinical surveillance, where you're waiting for someone to go to the doctor, get tested. The test has to be correct and reported, right? Those are a lot of steps. You're only getting the tip of the iceberg for all the cases because you lose mm -hmm. information at each step. And really, the biggest one is getting someone to go to the doctor. That's, right. you know, all of those community cases that we miss because they either don't go to the doctor or they don't even have symptoms, right? And so we can estimate back to get what we think the true burden of infection is. Um, but I think wastewater data is really powerful because we can get at that community level without having to estimate anything. It's a way to measure it in the lab. And so what we have to do uh, now is figure out, okay, when we get that wastewater level, what is the best model to go from that wastewater number to a number of cases? And I think we'll get there. We're not there yet. There's still more research to do, but that is really where we want to be able to go. Like there is a specific algorithm or equation that can, that is out there that is undiscovered as of yet, but they can maybe show like, if this is the level that's shed, this is a good number to try to figure out how many cases there are. Right, it's not even undiscovered. So there's already models out there to do this. The problem is, so, so I'm gonna give you a little um, jargon here. The problem oh. is the models are not what we call fully parameterized, right? Mm -hmm. So the easiest way to think about this is what, if we have a certain amount of, let's use SARS-CoV-2, RNA and wastewater. If we want to know how many cases we have from that, one of the things we need to know is how much virus does each case shed, right? Mm -hmm. What's the divisor for that number? And that's the number we're missing. That's a parameter in the model. It's not the only one, but it's one of the key ones. And we don't have good data on that right now. We have very limited data. So what that means is that our model is very uncertain and we get a, very, a huge wide range of possibilities. And right now those estimates are so wide that they're really not useful. I mean, it's, it's, it's equivalent to saying, well, the, the likelihood is somewhere between one and 100%, which is not a very useful thing to say. <laughs> so we need to get those parameters tighter so that our estimates get tighter and more useful. And what influences the amount of RNA? Is is it RNA from the virus that's, that you're that you're picking up? Like, is it the severity of the case? Is it how much fiber someone eats? It could be all of the above. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, certainly we want to look at um, symptoms versus no symptoms. Early data suggests that doesn't make a difference, but there's not a lot there. It could change with more data. Now we need to think about does vaccination change your shedding rate, right? Does it look different if it's a breakthrough vaccinated case versus an unvaccinated case? Does shedding change with variants? Maybe Omicron sheds a lot more than Delta or Alpha. Mm. Um, and so we don't have that information. And then the other piece, so that's the sort of biological piece about the, the human infections. So part one is your biological pipes. And then Number two is the industrial aspect. So the municipal guts and concrete shoots, this shit show ballet performed every day underneath our communities. It's beautiful. The other piece is what's the impact of the wastewater system itself? So how long is the virus in the system, in the pipes, before it gets to the wastewater treatment plant and we sample it? 
because the longer it's in those pipes, the more it's going to decay. Ah, so we mm -hmm. have to take that into account. Also, a lot of things come into a wastewater treatment plant. Um, some of them can be very harsh, especially if you have a lot of industrial input. So there can be mm -hmm. really harsh chemicals there that can accelerate that decay. And so we would need to know, like, what else is coming into the system that we need to be able to account for to, to correct those numbers, to account for those changes in the system. Those are the two big categories of data that we would need to put into that to accurately make that estimate back to cases. So yes, our bodies may react to different variants differently, and your guts, yours, may process viral particles in novel ways with a vaccine-fortified immune system. But we are not the only factor. Because remember that while wastewater treatment plants give us a great overhead view, there may be less control over the sampling conditions. But scientists are always solving problems, which really bowls me over. How do you feel when you have those kind of question marks or those puzzle pieces? How do you approach them? Because I'm thinking about being at your desk and being like, we don't know how much bleach is in the water. We don't know how much <laughs> And I just picture myself sobbing. How do you... How do you approach like these hurdles and the curveballs and the new trends and variants? How does your science brain approach it? I mean, at CDC, it's all about having the right network and being collaborative with the science community at large. So, you know, we have our networks of academic collaborators that we can reach out to and say, hey, have you ever thought about this problem? How do you measure so that the time it takes for some, you know, a flushed toilet to get from a house to a to the treatment plan is called residence time. How do you measure residence time? Can we get good estimates of that? What's the fluctuation? What's the decay? And so asking them all of these questions and getting their ideas and do you have, do you, researcher A, have a platform available where you could ask that question? If the answer is yes, then the question for me at CDC becomes, well, how can I support them getting the resources they need to answer this critical question? And so that's how we <laughs> solve it largely mm -hmm. um, is by relying on our collaborative network that's available to us. Well, I have a, a basic question here, but does that mean that knowing you have this network and that can help you solve these giant problems, does it make workplace team building and office politics <laughs> any more challenging or easier like knowing like you better have friends in the building because you're gonna have a lot of questions and you might need help like is everyone pretty tight at cdc and just like doesn't let grudges stick around i mean we're human i will say that we are human <laughs> we're human people working here but yeah i mean it, it is an excellent place to work i i would you know, be lying if I said otherwise. Uh, I mean, ultimately, we're a very mission-driven agency and everybody wants to support the science as best they can. And so if I am willing to go to a colleague and able to convince them that doing this is going to be the key to, you know, moving some public health issue forward, they're almost always willing to get on board. And so it, it is a very collaborative agency, both internally and externally. And that's, that's how we're able to move quickly. Let that perfectly diplomatic answer serve as yet another reminder that science is done by human people, ones who have birthdays and go through breakups. And when they're not trying to fix a pandemic, they buy bathing suits at Target and they have opinions about cauliflower rice. And in some people's professions, though, holding a grudge about a parking space could lead to thousands of people needlessly dying. 
So let's get along. What about myths that people think about your job or environmental microbiology? Anything that you're, any jokes that you have heard a thousand times or any myths that you want to bust? Well, I, I don't know about jokes, but we are a bastion of puns. Um, ah! I, I, um, I have a lot of uh, really funny people on my team. And so we talk about, you know, what can your poo do for you to try and rally people to support wastewater surveillance? Your number two is our number one. Uh, we've got we've got quite a few. And I have to tell you that the news acronym when we came up with that, the pun possibilities were a big oh. part of why we went with it. Um, because immediately we were like, oh, when you do your business, we get the news. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we do a lot of that. <laughs> mm, I had a hunch. I could just smell it. Speaking of aromas, how does a legit CDC epidemiologist feel about Twitter user Terry Drawstuff November 2020 revelation that, quote, there are angry ladies all over Yankee Candle site reporting none of the candles they got had any smell at all. I wonder if they're feeling a little hot and nothing has much taste for the last couple days, too. This tweet made the rounds. It led to Stanford psychophysiology PhD student Kate Petrova to decide, you know what, let's look into it, and harvested one-star reviews from scented candle emporiums all over the internet, and then crunched those flaming numbers, because sometimes the data is right under your nose. Uh, what about collaborations with the epidemiologists at Yankee Candle? Do you ever have to follow what they're finding? I don't. That's a great question. I had forgotten about that whole piece that they were getting a lot of complaints because no one could smell their candles. Um, you know, we are open to unique collaborations. I don't know that news necessarily has a role with Yankee Candle, Um but certainly, we're always looking for new ways um, and novel approaches to get at these questions because they're hard. I mean, like you you said earlier, this is something that there's a lot of challenges and we don't have all the answers. But the way to get to them is to be open to possibilities. And it's literally life or death. The work that you're doing can can lead to huge breakthroughs that can really protect people. Um, we got so many questions from listeners. Can I lightning round you? Of course. Okay. Okay, so this first question was asked by patron Amy Naramatsu, who wrote in, quote, I work for an environmental nonprofit and water quality is a huge part of our work. We test for bacteria and other nasty stuff and publish our findings. What's the best way to communicate this data, particularly for the general public who may not understand the language? So she, wait, Amy works for an environmental nonprofit. You know what? Let's make, let's make this episode weird. Okay, I'm going to call Amy Naramatsu. Here we go. She's not expecting my call. I'm nervous about this. Thank you for calling Shore Rivers, the voice of Clean Rivers on Maryland's Eastern Shore. If you know your party's three-digit extension, you may dial it now. This is Amy. Oh, hi, Amy. Um, I understand you're the community engagement coordinator. Uh, yeah, who am I speaking to? Um, well, I'm actually, I'm, I'm calling from a podcast. Um, okay. It's, um, it's from Ologies. Oh my, wait. Hi. I'm sorry. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. I'm deceased right now. <laughs> I'm so shook. I'm so shook. You're like, who's this bitch calling me? <laughs> 
Um, number one, I am recording right now. Do I have your permission? Is that okay? Sure. Okay. Um, it's a very quick call. Essentially, I wanted to call because this week's episode, it's with Dr. Amy Kirby, who's with the CDC. She's amazing. But because the CDC is a government entity, they can't select a charity. So she's like, I'm going to leave it up to you. And you submitted a question. You mentioned that you're a community engagement coordinator for... Uh, essentially for Shore Rivers, which helps clean up waterways. So I was wondering if we can make the donation to y'all instead. That would be amazing. Yay. Okay, good. Can you tell me, like, in a nutshell, what Shore Rivers does, like what your mission statement is? Yeah, absolutely. So Shore Rivers is an environmental nonprofit based on the Eastern Shore, and we have a mission to protect and restore our Eastern Shore waterways through science-based advocacy, restoration, and education. Woo! Nailed it. Look at that. <laughs> Engaging the community. <laughs> Amazing. Sorry that I seemed like such a creep at the beginning. I, I realized once you answered that I didn't have a plan for what I was going to say to you. I was like, oh, fuck. That's sort of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Amy, for letting me completely interrupt your day with some charitable tomfoolery. And thank you, Dr. Kirby, for having us just roll the dice this week for you. And to learn more about Shore Rivers, head to shorerivers.org, which will be linked in the show notes. That donation was made possible by sponsors of the show. Thank you, sponsors. Allergies with Allie Ward is sponsored by Claritin. So luckily for those that live with the symptoms of allergies, you can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This is designed for serious allergy sufferers and Claritin D has two powerful ingredients and just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. It's this double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available. Relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease just boom down the hatch you can get non-drowsy relief of allergy symptoms and with claritin d you can still make the most of your day without compromise or looking like you've been crying are you ready to live life as if you don't have allergies it's time to live claritin clear your pod mother jarrett terrible allergies and was recently shooting an indie movie that was filming in a house that had seven cats guess who's allergic to cats him so yeah we always have claritin in like each of our cars essentially claritin d is the third in our relationship. It's fast and powerful relief. It's just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And y'all know I have a little dog named Grammy, which is short for Gremlin. And y'all help me name her. And there's nothing that we like more than seeing her happy, which means tasty dog foods. And Merrick has been crafting high-quality dog food for over 30 years. They were founded in Hereford, Texas. But Grammy doesn't care about that. She cares about smushing her face in it and then licking the bowl. And I don't blame her because they use real ingredients and home-style recipes like real Texas beef and sweet potato or Grammy's pot pie. Grammy's like, Grammy's pot pie. Get away from it. It's mine. I also like that on the bag, they show what's in it, and they always use deboned meat, fish, or poultry as the number one ingredient, and I think Grammy appreciates that. So check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Yum, 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 yum. Oh, KiwiCo. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allie's love you. 
Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kiddos busy. KiwiCo's like, we did the legwork for you. And the summer adventure series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids can build an actual bottle rocket and you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages, everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages nine to 14, an entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at Kiwi kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. Oh, it's heating up. It's time to say bye now to your jackets and your sweaters and your tights and get reacquainted with shorts and tees, breezy things. Can I point you to the direction of Quince? What I love about Quince, you can build a lineup of timeless pieces. They keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year without spending a fortune. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts. They start at $30. They have washable silk tops. And I love that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands because they partner directly with top factories. They cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to you. So whether you need a sundress you can wear to a picnic or you need some good t-shirts or tanks that feel nice on your skin and are well-made, head over to Quince. I love them so much I put them on my body. That's what clothes are for. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies. Okay, no question too crappy. Let's see what's coming down the pipe. So this first one was asked by Specs Owl and... Um, hey, Artemis wants to know, what's the deal with medications down the drain? And they say, I know we're not supposed to because it'll get in the water, but I want to know how it permeates and how much and all of that. And a bunch of people asked about hormonal birth control in the wastewater. Looking right at you, Katie Courtright and first-time asker Margaret Reese. Is that something that you are also having to find ways to to measure and come up with some public health guidelines around? Yeah, so I'm like jumping up and down at this question because <laughs> yes, please don't put your medications down the drain. Frankly, enough of it comes out in urine and stool on its own. <laughs> we don't need the added input from the pills themselves going down the drain. Yes, I mean, this is something that we are interested in doing. There are researchers that are already out there looking at um, can we measure pharmaceuticals in wastewater? And what does that tell us about the health of the community, right? Looking at things like pain medications are one. Uh, another option is things like antidepressants. Can we use those as you know, large-scale markers of community health issues that we can provide better interventions for? 
And luckily, scientists are on this, and there are reams of studies that you can thumb through, such as the 2019 banger, Pharmaceuticals of Emerging Concern in Aquatic Systems, Chemistry, Occurrence, Effects, and Removal Methods, which I read late at night. And this paper whispered facts to me such as the presence of pharmaceutical contaminants in groundwaters, surface water, seawater, wastewater treatment plants, soils, and sludges has been well documented. It said a range of methods, including oxidation, photolysis, UV degradation, nanofiltration, reverse osmosis, and absorption has been used for their remediation from aqueous systems. So there's a lot of shit in there. They're trying a lot of stuff. And this paper warns that despite our efforts, we are clearly not getting it all. It also told me that pharma consumption ebbs and flows, just like lapping waves of sewer water. And the study went on to cite data that Greece's 2010 economic crisis set off surges in the consumption of psychoactive pharmaceuticals. Also, different parts of the world have higher estrogen water toxicity, while antibiotics are all the rage in other raging waters, and wastewater filled with antibiotics, guess what that is? That's just a giant cocktail party for evolution, just a big Petri dish. It's a hometown training grounds for antibiotic-resistant germs that we can't kill. And I just can't help but consider the land that we're on, the mountain streams and the bays and the oceans and the deltas, and how their very chemistry has been altered by the remedies that we rely on to survive. And, you know, skimming lists of water contaminants like beta blockers and anticoagulants and hormones and painkillers and antidepressants and lipid-lowering drugs and antifungals. You know, I read that, and as an American, I couldn't help but wonder, you know, is it cheaper to get my prescriptions by sitting in a creek? And which rivers have the good stuff? Well, Christy Sullivan, I wanted to ask this. Is it? up top listener question wants to know who was the person who said hear me out i've got a good idea and the sentence ended with collecting and analyzing wastewater was that you (laughs) um (laughs) i actually am going to give the credit to this and and he's going to die when he hears me say this to our branch manager so very early on he was like can't we measure this in poo and i was like yeah, I think we can. Uh, branch manager's name. Do you want to give him a shout out by name? Sure. His name is Eric Gross. Er- his last name is Gross? <laughs> yes, his last name is Gross. Amazing. Is he a doctor? Uh, he is not. He has an MPH. He actually, sadly, doesn't work in our team anymore. He moved to a different oh. area of CDC. He oh. called himself our resident bean counter because he handled all of the finances. Oh, I was going to say, if he's he should get an honorary just to be <laughs> Dr. Gross because a lab coat with Dr. Gross is... <laughs> No, amazing. I love it. Uh, uh, Nina Eve Z had a question, I'm sure is on a bunch of people's minds. Uh, they say, oh, I'm super intrigued by this, but are there any privacy issues with going through people's poop? Or is it like those fingernail clippings in the waste bin in Law and Order? Once it's out of your system and in the system, it belongs to the system, right? Yeah. So... I mean, there is a lot of DNA in wastewater, right? So the privacy concerns are not unfounded. And it's definitely something that we need to address head on and be very transparent about what we are testing and what we are not testing and how that data is going to be used. As far as who actually owns it, once it gets to the treatment plant, it's theirs. And actually, once it's in the pipes that they control to get there, they are officially owners of it and responsible for whatever happens to it. 
This sack of shit is mine. A lot of the information we're gathering is about the community at large. So we want to be very transparent with the community about you know how we're using this data. Yeah, that makes plenty of sense. I also feel like the resources it would take to run a DNA sample on each individual person or each individual fragment, that seems like beyond the capabilities even of the system, right? Yeah, I mean, it's not something that we're interested in doing. I, I think about it from what we call a future use perspective, right? What could people do 10 years from now with these samples, 20 years from now? And so we want to put guardrails on that now because down the road, that may be something that's much easier to do. But that is an inappropriate use of public health data. It's not what we're gathering it for. And so we want to make sure there's protection around these samples um, so that they are used only for things that are a community good. But she makes an excellent point and raises the black mirror hypothesis, which is not a real term. It's just something that haunts me when I'm in a scroll hole or I happen upon a jovial news clip about a robotic police dog. Are there any specters in Amy's head? Mallory Nettleton wants to know if you've ever seen anything weird or surprising while you're testing, but it is filtered or at least de-chunked by the time it gets to you, correct? Yeah, we haven't seen it with wastewater. Um, with other <laughs> poop-related studies, absolutely. I mean, you can you learn a lot from people. <laughs> really? From what? Yeah, you can learn what they eat and their patterns. I I often tell my husband, I'm like, I have spent way too much of my adult life pondering people's bathroom habits <gasps> for various reasons. Anything you can elaborate on? Because I am curious. Um, <laughs> the thing that always puzzles me is bathroom patterns. So I used to do norovirus human challenge studies. That was when I worked at Emory. So we would bring people into the hospital and intentionally give them norovirus. Of course, mm. full, all fully, they knew what we were doing, right? Fully, right? fully consented, they agreed to this, to look at immune reactions or treatment methodologies, those sorts of things, right? Let me just, I'm going to hop in here and truncate this for us all. So Dr. Kirby found that some patients were like, number two sample? Yeah, I got five of them for you today. And other people, all of us, the same species, were like, I just, I just gave you one yesterday. Come back in like a week. Uh, just this huge variation in patterns. And then trying to account for that in our data. Like if you're thinking about daily stool production and daily virus shedding, how do you compare the person that goes three or four times a day to the person that goes once every four days. As long as it's normal for them, we worked around it. Um, but I was surprised at mm -hmm. how broad the variation was. I think it's interesting that you were surprised at the variation and I am surprised that someone's like, yes, norovirus, where's the waiver? I'll sign it. <laughs> we got a lot of that. There are most definitely two types of people in the world. The absolute <laughs> yes, I'll do it. And the no way you could not pay me enough. I haven't met anyone that's like, well, maybe. <laughs> Did you do people get remunerated for their contributions to science in that way? They do. Yes. Okay. Our challenge study subjects did get reimbursed for their time. Well, as someone who was lucky enough to dodge some norovirus salsa at a barbecue once, I mean, no one at that barbecue got paid. So there are people out there getting it for no money just for some free salsa. Oh, longtime listeners know that my inherent revulsion for raw tomatoes saved my actual ass. Now, what about organisms that are not people? Lee was not the only person with this question. 
a Diana Teeter asks, can you tell from wastewater tests if the pathogen you find has human origin or animal origin? And if not, what further sleuthing needs to be done? Sleuthing. Um, we cannot tell. So when we detect a specific pathogen, we can't tell if it's from humans or animals, assuming it's a pathogen that we know is found in both, right? If it's strictly a whatever bird pathogen, then we know it's from birds. However, what we can do is we can look for other markers, microbial markers that are only found in one of those sources. So we use specific microbial markers that are only present in human feces. Yum. So we can say, okay, there's human feces in this wastewater, which we would expect. We can also look for markers associated with specific animals, rats, birds, dogs, cats. And so we can say what other animals have contributed significantly to this wastewater that may be the source of these pathogens. You know, which brings me to a good question. Timothy Wang and Sidani Scheimler asked, what are the issues with flushing pet poop? And are there ways to monitor animal-based disease versus human disease, which you just answered, but should people be flushing cat poop? In your opinion, as someone who is an environmental microbiologist? I mean, they can. It's a safe way to dispose of pet waste in our household, so that's fine. I mean, I will, you know, stand up for my utility colleagues and say, please don't flush cat litter. It clogs up the system and causes uh -huh. all kinds of problems. But cat poop, uh, dog poop is fine. I think it's an interesting question of whether we could monitor uh, diseases, animal diseases that way. The challenge there would really be scale, right? You might predict that, for example, in the city, it's much more likely that pet waste gets flushed than in the country. And so you need to account for that difference in your evaluation. Also, heads up, cats can be trained to use a toilet and apparently so can some birds, like parrots, which makes sense given that they can learn to insult us in our own language. Now, dogs, too, have been trained to use toilets and even flush. So imagine, New Yorkers, if you start now, it's April, perhaps you'll have this training thing on lock before winter comes and you're standing on a frozen sidewalk waiting for poop to drop. I thought Ferf Brownoff had a good question. It's a sensitive question. I'm going to ask it anyway. They said, when I heard about monitoring COVID through wastewater, my immediate fear was, can I get COVID from smelling someone's fart? So can you get a disease from inhaling particles after someone rips some of that trumpet? Do you ever have to worry about something going from enteric to airborne? So for COVID, this is not a risk that we are concerned okay. about. And mainly that's because we don't think the there's no evidence that the virus that is shed in stool or through the GI tract is infectious. In fact, most of our evidence suggests that it is not. So, Paul, we can't totally rule out the possibility, very, very low, that any virus coming from the GI tract is going to be infectious. And so a fart wouldn't be any more infectious than a, a poop, right? However, I think this is an interesting question for other infections where we know that a lot of infectious viruses shed. So we'll go back to my old friend norovirus again. Um, there we know that infectious viruses shed at very high levels in stool. So is there a possibility that aerosolized virus from a fart could cause infection? Wow, this gets grosser. We don't know that, but what we do have really good evidence of is that when people vomit with norovirus, which also happens a lot, right? It's the winter vomiting disease that mm. particle, this is really gross. I'm sorry to, to no, throw this no. out there at the end. But when people vomit, there's lots of aerosolized particles from that. And there's multiple outbreak studies showing that, you know, really the only exposure we can figure out is that that person across the room must have inhaled aerosolized 
vomit. I don't like this. We don't know that it goes through their nose necessarily. More likely they were breathing through their mouth and it's kind of equivalent to consuming it. I think that's the worst thing I've ever heard. But certainly there's very strong epi evidence that that can happen with a fecal oral transmitted virus. Whether or not you would actually aerosolize enough virus through a fart, through your clothes, <laughs> To be a risk, I don't know. I think it's unlikely, but I wouldn't rule it out. There's a biological, you know, pathway there. I mean, how lucky are we that we have someone answering these questions for us somewhere? Like I said, I spend way too much time <laughs> thinking about people's bathroom habits. <laughs> what is the hardest part about your job or what do you hate the most? I mean, you are doing the Lord's work, but what's the worst part about analyzing poop? I mean, well... The worst part, I think, about analyzing poop and anything stool-related in public health is the stigma that people still have around poop and their own poop. So there's an immediate revulsion, which I understand. It's natural, right? It's actually protective if you think about the evolutionary reasons for it. But what that means is that people don't want to participate in studies like our norovirus study. They don't want to answer questions about their bathroom habits and how often they poop at work versus pooping at home, which is important for us to understand how wastewater surveillance works and the most effective approaches. They don't really want to think about scientists somewhere digging through their, you know, wastewater to answer questions. It's just there's this immediate rejection of it and that we have to factor that response into all of our studies, that there's there's a bias that comes with that, right, of people that just won't participate because it's gross. I'm used to it at this point, but it is hard to overcome. Oh, that's such a good answer and so understandable that that is a giant psychological barrier of other people's to getting your work done. You know, yeah. I can't ima imagine if birds were like, mm, I don't really want you to see my nest. Just don't look at my nest. Just can you not? Just, I don't even nest. I don't even have a nest, actually. Like, never. Like, that's there's not a lot of shame around so many other fields. That's so interesting. What about the thing that you love the most? I mean, it's corny, but the thing that I love the most is being able to make a difference. It's the reason I went into public health and, and got out of molecular micro. I wanted to be able to see that the work that I'm doing has an impact in the community. And I mean, I, I loved the work I was doing pre-COVID, but man, as soon as you're deployed to the response, um, that application of your work takes on a whole different uh, urgency and quickness. You know, you see things go into practice within days instead of weeks or months or years. Well, thank you for doing it. I'm such a fan of what you do. I just think it's so interesting and it's just the way of the future, I feel like. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, we think it's going to be absolutely a new paradigm for disease surveillance because it doesn't require any action from people, right? It's totally passive to the community. Um, so it's been great to talk mm -hmm. to you and, and really thank you for this opportunity. Ah, but wait, we have a little more. I'm sneaking in a little insight from virology guest and repeat guest, Dr. Shannon Bennett of the California Academy of Arts and Sciences, who I got a chance to see a few weeks ago. We chatted in San Francisco face-to-face -face with multiple layers of polypropylene in between about variants and advice going into our third COVID summer. What are we supposed to do? I mean, and I guess just given what we're talking about, we'll just keep masks on. Might as well. We're in a Might small space. Might as well. We're yeah. in a small space. Yes. Um, oh, first off, I don't think I had to do this before, but if you could say your first and last name and your pronouns. Mm -hmm. Shannon Bennett, she, her. Mm -hmm. Now, we last got to hang out in person 
March of 2020. No masks. No, no masks. Sitting within six feet comfortably in an indoor setting. What a luxury. What a luxury it was. If another virus emerges, do you think that this SARS-CoV-2 experience will have us be at all better equipped to handle another outbreak of some kind? Oh, yeah. That's uh, good. Uh, yeah, no, right? no. Uh, uh, this is th- this has uh, been um, an amazing time of building capacity around the world to identify these novel events and sequence these viruses and share the data. I mean, just look at how quickly we were able to develop effective vaccines. Honestly, nobody would have ever predicted that we would have been able to have vaccines that at the beginning were 95% effective against infection. Nobody tries to even design vaccines to protect <laughs> against infection. They try to design them to protect, uh, to protect against disease. Mm-hmm. And so it's amazing that we have this new vaccine technology. And it's because, uh, in part, we were, we were able to accelerate the vaccines because of in massive sort of data sharing, massive cross-sector collaboration, massive infusion in production lines for the vaccine. We've learned so much. Right. I mean, it's kind of forged in fire in some way where, yeah. well, we didn't necessarily have all of this in place, but we have it now. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Um, you know, things are starting to open up a little bit. Mm. Um, you know, we're here at a, a science nightlife event that we have not had in two years, Yep. Um, though it will be masked for attendees. Um, anything that as we get into summer... People gets warm. People start to act out. They're like, "Let's do it. Let's get out." Yeah, festivals. I'm ready. I'm, yeah, I've been bored. Anything? Any cautionary advice or anything? Any guidelines? So I'm fully vaccinated and boosted. Mm-hmm. And job. honestly, wearing a mask. I don't want COVID. But if I did get COVID, it would probably be just fine, right? I'd probably have a pretty mild course. It would be a pain because I'd probably have to, you know, control my movements uh, and quarantine. But there are a lot of people that, can't, for whatever reason, they're either not eligible, they can't get the vaccine, they don't have a good immune response to the vaccine. And so right now, I mostly wear my mask to protect others. Mm-hmm. And I think as a society, we're still seeing uh, this thing called extra deaths. Mm, right? That There's, sounds terrible. Yeah, it, it, I know. It does sound horrible. It, it, we understand that a certain and hopefully a tiny proportion of our population will always have a very bad outcome to a disease infection event. And mm-hmm. with flu, we, we just, you know, we just, we know what that looks like and we just have to live with it. People are still dying of COVID. People are still dying of Omicron. And, and even very young people. And so we need to decide how much of that we can live with. And then I will start thinking more and more about where and when I can take my mask off relative to the safety of other people. Smart. Consider it. I think it's one of those things where no one's ever like, I really regret wearing a mask to that. But there are times when people are probably wish I would have worn a mask somewhere. So, right. you know. Yeah. Better safe than sorry, they yeah. say. Well, I imagine you're going to have a lot of young 
virologists who are sort of shuffled into this field for motivated by um, very personal reasons. So uh, there's going to be a lot of people probably who have an interest in tackling things before they really become an outbreak. So I agree. So there you have it. Ask three smart people, dozens of very not smart and truly shameless questions. Thank you for sticking it out. I know that you're like, should I listen to this? You know, you know more now and you have helped with the hardest part of Dr. Kirby's work, which is people running away screaming from it. And there are links to the studies we cited, there are references, there's the link to the charity for the episode, there's a link of, of birds on toilets and more up at aliward.com slash ologies slash environmental microbiology. That's linked in the show notes. You do not have to write it down. You can follow the CDC. Their handle is at CDCGov. You can follow us, if you please, at ologies on Twitter and Instagram. I'm on those as Alleyward, Alley with one L. You can head to ologiesmerch.com to put some ologies things on your body. If you tag at ologies merch on Instagram, we repost you on Mondays. Uh, there are more links at aliward.com. Hello to the Ologies Podcast subreddit. Hi, everyone. And the Ologies Podcast Facebook group, which is admin by Aaron Talbert with help from Shannon Abani of the podcast You Are That. Thank you to everyone who is a patron who submits questions, who supports a show. Ugh, I love you. It's a buck a month to join. Thank you, Susan Hale and Noelle Dilworth, who do so much behind the scenes from scheduling to literally filing our taxes. Emily White of The Wordery heads up our transcripts. Caleb Patton bleeps episodes. Transcripts and bleeped episodes are both available for free at the link in the show notes. Every few weeks, we release a Smologies episode that has been defilthed for kids' ears and condensed. Zeke Rodriguez-Thomas of Mind Jam Media works on those, and Stephen Ray Morris helps out too. Kelly R. Dwyer updates the website. She can make you a website if you like. Her link's in the show notes. And giant thanks to the man, the mullet, the mustache, Jarrett Sleeper, who, if you find him on Instagram at Jarrett Sleeper, you can weigh in on his recent headshots. Tell him which one is the most astonishing. It's difficult to choose. Nick Thorburn made the theme music. And if you listen to the end of the episode, I burden you with a secret, if you will. And you know what's weird is I've been doing this show for like 250 episodes or something. I should know exactly the number and I should celebrate that. Um, And I'm still, I still get nervous when I record asides. I don't know why. I can edit them. If I, if I mess up, I can edit them. It's fine. Why am I, what do you care? Just get into it, you know? And I'm still like, oh, what if I mess up? You know what it is? I think I still like this job. I've been doing it since 2017. I still like it. Okay, see you next week. Sorry this one was so gross. Love you. Bye-bye. sewer water chico from muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes the 2024 nissan pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on earth in a pathfinder it's more than just the arrival the real excitement comes from the ride to get there with seven drive modes pathfinders available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys so chase bigger better more exciting adventures in the 2024 nissan pathfinder Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions.
They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.